Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome to episode 76 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my live stream and career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. And in this episode I'm delighted to say that I'm joined from his farm in New Zealand by Chris Harry, yes, the man who signed the jam to Polydor in 1977. Not only is he an A&R legend, record producer, musician, also known for discovering The Cure and setting up his own hugely successful record label, Fiction Records. We're going to dig into all these stories. My very special guest, Chris Parry, thanks for joining me. You're welcome. Nice to join you, Dan, on your uh, podcast. You're the first guest that we've had from Down Under, and um, we'll we'll get into the move and, and why you headed that way as we get through the podcast. But we have to kick off, obviously, it's a Paul Weller fan podcast. You are the man that started this whole journey off with the discovery of the jam. Your job at Polydor was as a talent scout, was that right? Well, yeah, a little bit more than a talent scout, but it was a glorified talent scout. I mean, basically, I was in an A&R team of a few different people, you know, and we were called A&R managers. So we had a, a brief to go out there and um, look for talent, as well as we were also briefed to look at, you know, commission recordings and that for signed artists that are already in the company, so and do some of the marketing for that. So it was kind of broader. It was a little bit broader and deeper than just talent scout yeah it's worth saying polydor at the time was quite a traditional label in the sense of the the type of artists it had so what was it that gripped you about the world of punk was that something that you were passionate about or something that your boss kind of went yeah this is a new thing it's becoming popular go and find me a punk band no it came then very subtly the head of the company was called uh freddie hyan and freddie used to hang out at odd clubs as you did it was the manager of the 100 club that Freddie met in one of the clubs in town who said look there's a band around called the Sex Pistols they've, they just you know they got the weirdest followers and um it's quite underground, but they booked the 100 Club and did a show and uh, quite something. And Freddie said to me, just that. And he said, can you go and find out what's going on? You know, just let me know what, what it's all about. 
So I started to make some inquiries with um, some journalist friends I had, I knew, and I had a band on the label called Doctors of Madness, and um, they were a little bit unusual, but their music was a bit more mainstream than a lot of their other things, like their names, etc. And there was a journalist there that I who really liked the Doctors, and his name is John Ingham. So I rang John and asked him the question. He said. You know, well, how did you know about that? Because they were very conscious of trying to keep it very quiet. So it was him and Caroline Kuhn were in the inn on the punk scene. So as neither of them drove and I did, I managed to say, oh, look, you know, I'll come along to the show. So basically I got sort of parachuted in as the sort of token A&R guy with all this very early punk movement. So that's how it started. And over time I started to get quite passionate about it. Certainly by the time the jam had come around, we'd had a lot of sort of interconnectivity with the pistols and the Clash and the Damned and then the Clash I put in the studios for a set of demos and so on and so forth. But it was difficult to get them signed. But I was certainly, you know, very much in, in on that scene. And um, and it was from that that led me down the path to knowing about the jam. And I found out about the jam through um, Shane from the Pogues, who wasn't in the Pogues then, but he was a number one Sex Pistols fan. And, of course, when I'd go near the bar, he, he and a few others would always come scuttling over for the three beers. So we were at, <laughs> yeah, it's true. So when, uh, actually, it was at Chelsea Town Hall, I'm pretty sure, Shane came over, I'm buying some beers. And he said, yeah, Chris, he said, there's this band playing Saturday night, this Saturday night at the marquee, called the jam, you want to go and check them out. Tip from Shane, I thought it was worth doing. So that's exactly what I did. Brilliant. And that was January 1977, I think I'm right in saying. Yes. But you, but you tried to sign the Sex Pistols and the Clash. And um, am I right in thinking that you, you racked up a, quite a bill on the company credit card trying to... <laughs> was that right? In, in booze? Yeah, yeah it's petty cash. But yeah, there was a lot of... It was all stuff, you know. It was the bar that probably cost me the most. You know? <laughs> but um, I was the only guy hanging around that had, had an expense account. So yeah, I was, I was ripping in through the bar. But um, it cost me a few bob. But um, <laughs> it was a great journey. Yeah, and I had a, to answer your question. You know, I had a good relationship with all the managers, really. And there were times when it was quite difficult to to sort of get into you know getting the band signed. The Pistols' journey, as you all know, from the great rock and roll swindle, was quite a you know journey. It moved quite quickly. We thought we had them signed, and then they signed that night, the same day, to EMI, and then. I thought we were all sweet and happening and with the clash until, you know, some stuff went down and, and that got a bit stretched. And then by the time everyone settled down, basically then the whole punk thing was becoming quite well known and, uh, and it was going to be much more sort of labels of wanting to jump in. And so CBS jumped ahead of us. So I had a pretty grim Christmas period as it happened because, you know, none of the signings that I wanted came through. I was very, not very happy. So, so in a way, the jam was a good result. And how much of it was through desperation then of, of having to get a signing of that type on the books versus you spotting something in them and going, actually, do you know what? I can, I can really see them going places. Uh, it wasn't a desperation. No, I mean, there was, there was all things going off. I mean, I felt that this was the start anyway. I was a bit concerned that as a label, Polydor was going to miss out if they had not got into it but we were looking at you were looking at stiff records as well try to try and do something with uh, jake and try and get something done there which proved quite difficult in the end but yeah we um yeah we were looking at all sorts of things the jam presented themselves slightly differently because they weren't a punk band as such they were coming through that kind of idea it was all part of a new wave of 
music that was started with punk that was going to, and I could see quite clearly that it was going to, it wasn't going to just stop with the Pistols and the Clash. Yeah, there was going to be a lot of sound bands that sound particularly punk, but there were there were there were others, and I'd seen the Stranglers play, and and I was also aware of what was going on with Miles Copeland and he with the police and all that stuff. So it was, there was a hell of a lot going on. But the problem was, you know, all of a sudden there's labels that didn't really like it and all of a sudden realised that this is something they had to get into. So from, you know, Richard Branson at Virgin and the A&M guys and the CBS guys and Albion management had picked up the Stranglers and they went through RCA, I think it was. But, yeah, it was all beginning to get very, um, you know, it wasn't like it was back in the summer when I'd be the only guy saying, am I, am I really, am I, is it, have I really got this? You know, because normally you'd have a few people hanging around, you know, that you could you could say, yeah, well, sound off about and or sound, you know, a sounding board or either we agree or disagree or something. But this was very odd that, you know, at the beginning, it was so underground, there was nobody. To be fair, a lot of the journalists didn't like them either. So Caroline and John Ingham were very, trying to be very protective of the movement to make sure it doesn't get stillborn. And then it went from that to exploding. So by the late November, I watched the enemy sounds, all of the papers just go from this is crap to this is the new thing. <laughs> I love it. Um, and famously, you signed the jam for was £6,000 and 6% royalty rate. I think I'm right in saying. Yeah. And John Weller, Paul's dad, also his manager, who you do the deal with, doesn't have a bank account. So ask for cash instead, yeah, instead of a cheque, right? Yeah, yeah. And he said, what's this? I said, it's a cheque, John. I don't want to check on my bank account. Right. Yeah, so we went across the road to, uh, to Lloyd's Bank, which was a Prince Polydor's bank at the time at Oxford Street, and went over there because, you know, uh, someone phoned up Lloyd's to say that, you know, I'd be coming by with a Polydor check and, uh, and it was okay to cash it for 6,000 readies, which I did get and sort of came in a big envelope and John just sort of looked at it, grabbed it and disappeared down the bloody escalator <laughs> as quick as a rat down a drain pipe. <laughs> He was always protective because he had his son in there and everything. I, I, I'm not assuming he's doing anything nefarious with it, but he was he grabbed the money and ran. I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> now, there's this quote um, I saw, which was that Paul Weller said to you, "I know I'm going to be successful," and it was quite clear that he had this from your point of view. He had this kind of this drive from day one when you know he really knew that this would work and and had kind of complete confidence in his ability. Would that be fair? Oh yeah, that was true when we first met. Paul and came backstage at, at Marquee and said, oh, I was, it was Polydor. And he picked up immediately about Polydor. So he's definitely kind of into his music background and history of recorded music and everything. But he also liked, he liked song and, uh, you know, Stacks Fault label. He was quite aware of all that stuff. And, and obviously, clearly, he was, was massively influenced in his early days by The Who. He was very keen on that, you know, which made my job easier. Uh, to sort of you know, explore signing to Polydor before anybody else. In the time that we were sort of talking about things and we hadn't quite done the deal, we'd got some demos done, uh, initial ones down at just off Wardle Street somewhere, and then we did some at Polydor with Smith. You know, we were about ready to sign, but in the meantime, I would be seeing them, keeping tabs with them and everything. And it was it was at a very well-known drinking hole called the Lamb and Flag just off Oxford Street that Paul told me that story about how he saw himself. And it wasn't boasting. It was quite impressive, really, this young guy saying, well, I'm, I'm going to be you know, some force 
in this country, musically, yeah. as it happens. <laughs> <laughs> well, he wasn't far wrong, to be fair, was he? So we should talk about the recordings. We should. Talk- so you co-produced the first three albums. Um, there's a bunch of singles as well, and it's really interesting to see how, at the time, you obviously don't see this so much now, but at the time, the the we, you were constantly kind of adding value to the fans, where songs would be singles but not be on albums. In that, those first few years, there was, I mean, there was so much work going on from the jam, weren't there, in terms of you know, the writing, the recording and then the live performance. It was constant those first few years, certainly. Well, it was. I mean, that's kind of how I saw it anyway, because the interesting thing is what I did have, which was a very good system actually worked for me in Polydor, was that you weren't only just recordings, but you also had played a big part in marketing. I could sort of bring together, you know, the, the designer for the, the sleeve and everything, and then also bring get the advertising you know, guys. They did the marketing, but they, a lot of it was more about getting their, uh, you know, the budget, so you'd set the budget. And then you could tie in promotions and tie in some extra promotional budget and stuff. So I learned a lot about actually what Albion, how Albion sort of worked on on um, the Stranglers, you know. So and, and other things, and just got a little bit of really concerning about you know getting the posters and etc. And, and the other thing was just keep you know keep moving fast because things were moving fast. So the important thing was to just um, get into the well, one of the jam to get in. I knew that they would punk outfit but they but this was a great opportunity because there was a hunger out there anyway young people wanted stuff and the jams music why it wouldn't have been called punk was still had you know, it was visceral and quite high energy and and was a was an extra sort of a dimension or another channel off the core idea so it was important to um yeah to catch that uh, wave as it were so I was very conscious of that. And things moved very fast because of that. So things like you know, all around the world, when I heard that song, it played live, I said, right, we've got to get that out quickly because coming up, we're going to do a Hammersmith Odeon, which was a big jump, for example. So, you know, we needed something fresh for the radio. So we managed to, I managed to get a couple of days and drag them and do this recording. Rapid El Rapido, you know, and, and you have contacts at the factory and they would turn it around quite quickly. So we could, we got it out in the two to three weeks and it came out the week before the, or the week of the show. I think it was a Saturday night show. So that was quite an important step. Another step came out, did well, and there's a follow-up to uh, in the city. It was strong, and it reconfirmed them further along. So I was very conscious of that. And all the touring, and they toured a lot too, working with the agency, uh, they were called Cowbell at the time. There was a guy called Martin Hopewell. who was uh, my contact there. And, you know, so we were just top to bottom. There was a lot of stuff that really, and there's no disrespect to John, he'd admit it anyway if he was alive. He didn't, he, he, he knew that he loved the band and he wanted to be there kind of, you know, be with them and take them around all the places. But really the, all the stuff that was going on was way beyond his ability as and a manager. It's worth touching on that first album because it took a while, didn't it, to, to capture that live sound because that was the kind of thing of trying to put that on record. You brought in Vic Coppersmith-Heaven to, to co-produce with you, yeah. but, but it took a while to get that sound right, didn't it, on that first LP? It did. It did. I mean, we recorded it in the Polydor Studios and quite comfortably. And Paul wanted to do that as well. It was fine. You know, I remember some Americans coming over and saying, how are you going to have separation of sound? Well, the point was we were going to get some, but we were, we were going to get a bit of collateral sound coming through. It was really the whole key was it was in the city that was the one that we really struggled with. And, now, and to be honest with you, I'd been working a lot because another thing you ended up doing, Paul, it was quite, quite interesting. We were ending up you know, working on mastering records and I was mastering 
lot of the artists that, that were being coming through. I'd be sitting with the mastering engineer and, and, and listening to the production sounds that was coming through. And you think, oh, that sounds a bit this or that. And you could see some of the imperfections in the, in the, uh, in the music technology. What we had to do, we had the recordings. I'm pretty sure we had the recordings, but it was getting the mixes, and we struggled. Um, and it was kind of funny in a way because back in the day, when we were in, uh, in Stratford Place, the studio was on the A and R floor, and that was quite funky and cool. And uh, and out we'd walk out of the studio, and then I boss jim crook who was quite a you know square pants i used to call him the, the bang and olufsen set you know his and his music and he liked you know he liked all that american twangy rock stuff you know and hi-fi and that's what i call him the bang and olufsen set you know and um he did have ears in a funny way he just didn't really get it he didn't get any of the stuff Vic and i would go there we'd try a mix and then we'd play it on his ar five speakers, you know, and, and Jim would go with his beard go, nah, 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 nah. <laughs> don't think so. Nah. And uh, Vic and I looked at each other and said, no, he's right, it's, it's not right. But eventually we got a sort of a sort of return, if I remember rightly, some sort of a slight slap back returning pulsing echo on one or two things that sort of just gave that track the kick it needed. Because it really had to sound like, you know, that sense of going out and something good was going to happen, something exciting was going to happen. There had to be that sense of, you know, that teenage rush. Is it? And it's got it, you know, it does have it. That mixes stands up. Yeah, I don't know how many times we played with it. And my problem was that I, at that stage in, in my life as a career or whatever, um, I was good with working with the bands and could change arrangements occasionally and do shit like that. But actually, when it came to the sound engineering, I was very much at Behoven to Smith. But um, but that was fine. Um, but it meant a bit. There's a little bit unfair on him sometimes because, uh, you know, the burden of engineering, you know, sometimes best of it shared. Not that I got even in the advanced time to start mixing sort of other things to you know, be totally into the into the machines, but you you know I could I could get around the board a little bit better and the balancing yeah. was better and so be a bit more specific about why it's not working. For my own personal progression, I wanted to be one of those record guys that can take to to the three sixty job and also mix and produce records as well. To make a, so in other words, you could you know from a band to a song to a recording, you know, and you take it through all the way. Quite an old fashioned idea, but Chris Blackwell's done it. You know, different people have done it. Lots, yeah, you know, a lot of label guys have done it, and uh, some you know hugely famously, of course, like Rick Rubin. I basically cut my teeth on the jam. Yeah, quickly comes around. This is the modern world. The second. Album, the follow-up album. But I want to get into the third one because I asked the fans for some questions as well for you, which we'll go through in a second. So a, lot, a lot of people are really excited about the fact that I'm chatting with you, yourself included. But that third album, give us the true story on this because it sounds like you know the rumors are there's a there's a there's a lost album somewhere that was rejected because it wasn't good enough. You had to have a very difficult conversation with Bruce about um, whether he had the talent as a songwriter or not. It, it, I mean, it's a massive decision, but one that kind of holds out if that's true because that third album will. Well, Cons is a terrific piece of work. Tell us the, the actual truth of the story. What, what came to you and what did you reject and what ended up in the bin? To be honest with you, I'm, I can't tell you the track titles of what ended up in the bin, but there wasn't much that was particularly good. There was some sort of a contribution from Rick Buckler, but it was very minor. One or two songs from Bruce, and there was a piece from Paul, and it's eliminated from a, a, a demo session that was done inside Polydor recordings again and, and it's in the studio. I got him in for a thing. There was a pressure coming from John to 
get another album because they made another payment. Going back to the original contract, you know, that 6%, 6 grand was just a, was a number that I extracted from, you know, square pants to say, look, that's um, Jim Cook. So, look, you know, just, look, I don't want you to get fucking involved in anything. Just give me a fucking price so that I can go and sign a band without getting involved with all you lot because you just put the kiss of death on it, right? And that's what was happening. <laughs> right. And, uh, yeah, well, 6%, 6 grand, you can do that. I said, fine. So that's what I said to John at the time. Anyway, yeah, it was part of the contract. I said, look, when you get a few hits under your belt, I said, under your belt, we'll do that. You can revisit it. So I put him with a lawyer called John Cohen, and the contract was upgraded, and then I had much more serious money. So that became John, the manager, thinking, well, this is good. We need the advance. But I was a bit unsure, and I knew that Paul was, you know, had this new girlfriend, and he was getting a bit moody, and, and things were getting tetchy, and, you know, John was complaining that he wasn't sort of, you know, he wasn't the same boy anymore and I thought well that's going to happen you know bloody but I was less worried about it but I could see that he was distancing himself really from the whole thing Is he getting a reaction I think it was just a reaction from the fact that you know toured a lot and it was all getting a bit challenging so I put him in the studio to do a few demos just to see what we had and it was those demos I went nah and I thought well this is going to be an awkward conversation and I thought this could be the end of my relationship with the band in the sense that what I was going to have to say was to say to Mick and Bruce, you know, just forget it, you know, and to say to Paul and to Paul's father, although he wasn't there in this particular conversation, that um, until you really, you know, give this thing attention and you write the songs, you know, it ain't going to happen. And, and he, he said, what do you mean? I said, well, I, you, won't, you won't be recording <laughs> And it was pretty damning to Bruce and not so much Rick, but Bruce who had and, – and it's fine because, I mean, he wanted a creative outlet and, I, and, and I, I sensed there was a little bit of that between Paul and Bruce. But, I mean, it, it was clear to me that sometimes someone has to say something like that. If Paul's not writing, there ain't no jam. And that's first amongst equals, but that's the truth. you know. And I wasn't here to, do, uh, you know, sort of – drop into another album because the second album was the first of the new contract albums and that was you know done under extreme pressure and I thought we're not going there again I'm not anyway and they can't they couldn't afford it they had to come out with a third album which was superior by a long chalk from uh, this is the modern world yeah it was a bit of a bruising thing and you know and, and to answer your question it was four or five tunes there was a Paul song in there but it wasn't a particularly impressive song I can't remember what it was but it was certainly not an album and there was no lost record and that's all. That's just a musical myth. They went away, licked their wounds, and then Paul got started. And I think it really cleared for Paul. It cleared this, there was something going on in the band. I think it was, there was some tension between him and the others. And I think it just, in a way, what I was really doing was just putting him in the position that he needed to be in. And he responded heroically. But of course, Rick and particularly Bruce were very unhappy about it. And we started to do some stuff. John came along, we're doing we're doing some work. I can't get Bruce to listen, you know, particularly it wasn't unpleasant to me, but you could tell there was some stuff going on. And cutting a long story short, uh, John came up and said, look, this I don't think the band want you to co- go in today. And so we sat down, there's Paul Bruce and myself and 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 Smith and just decided to call it a day. Um, I didn't want to be there. I didn't want to be. And Paul was a bit more, he was a bit sad about it, but it was pretty clear that Smith had control of the of the desk and that, that sort of stuff. They were getting more, they'd kind of cleared out the decks. Paul was got a lot of bunch of really good tunes. So it was, it was, they were, they were, team ready to go and by my withdrawing in some respects put down a benchmark so well okay you guys better deliver 
I was still the you know, A&R boss and all the rest of it. And I must say that they did. And you certainly pointed them in the right direction because who knows what would have happened if if um, yeah, if you hadn't have had those those difficult conversations. That's all part of the gig, right? So let me actually get into some of the questions. And I think actually some of them you've covered. So, um, for instance, Malcolm okay. Campbell would ask, was there a passing of any significance after um, all mod cons? Was it a joint decision? I think you've, you've, you've just summed that up beautifully. Um, Andy <laughs> T, does he realise the significance of the jam in British pop culture? What do you think made them stand that was a band well that's interesting I think uh, I've often thought about that there was a certain longevity about it there's a certain it's it's a very uh, visceral kind of stripped down high energy sound that really does excite young people because if you listen to all their recordings I mean there's some there are some reflective songs you know English Rose you know um, That's Entertainment which is fantastic Paul's a very clever writer and a good lyricist as well so there are those things and a lot of the things are touching on British subjects you know eating rifles and all that stuff and going underground etc etc very sort of you know, city, English city, you know, stuff and quite high energy, very accessible. You can relate a lot to them. And I think there's the cultural relationship that they had with their audience, which was puts them in a very strong position. In much way that sort of Springsteen sort of related to that Rust Belt group of rockers, you know, in America. EMB said, did any of the songs you produced change style radically between the first attempts and what ended up on the albums, maybe tempo or the, or the style of the song, for instance? Yeah, there were there were a few. I think there were, and I can't, I was, I'm trying to think of it, but there was, all around the world was weird because it didn't have a, there was a, all around the world, it was a, down, two, three, four, bang. And for some reason, they put six beats in there, and I just put my head around that, so I'm going to drop two backs in. You just edited it two out. I think, I think, because I have a drumming background, I, I right at the beginning, I, I let's put it like this, I kind of pulled Rick back to something much more strong and delivered. He was, he was, you know, he was sort of totally Keith Moon on splashing around, you know. So we managed to get the rhythm section right, and they're a great rhythm section, you know. The very, extremely tight rhythm section Rick and Bruce I mean they really do you know but they at first were a bit ragged but you know I'm trying to think of any one song that I really probably did but in the midst of time I can't remember I've got some great memories of some great recording sessions where we've made some very successful records with a few bands actually all around the world is up there with them in the sense that Okay, you're off the road. I've got you for a, a day and a night. We get this record made, you know, and then get it pressed to get it on the market. That was fun. That's very old school, very much like very old, old yeah. fashioned way of doing things. But I've, you know, of all the pantheon of the records that I've made, the singles and quick return arounds and, and had success, that's it's up there with them. Yeah, I love it. And, and also that idea of um, creating something that from scratch is this is not something that's been road tested through years of, of gigging, like a lot of the stuff because on that first album, it's, it's something new and fresh that they're having to react to. Hey, look, I'm aware of time. There's a couple of other things I want to talk to you about. Um, okay. So, so when you leave the jam, it's not like your career fizzles. You set up fiction records and sign the cure. Wow, yeah. I mean, blimey, yeah. <laughs> that's that's not yeah, a bad yeah. that's not a bad switch, is it? <laughs> no, 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 that's a good switch. I mean, that was I had the sense that I wanted to do more anyway. Don't get me wrong about Jan; they were great, but the Jan didn't travel very well. They Paul and they you know they were very, and I guess that's why they're so entrenched and, and so loved in the you know British culture is because actually they were very much very much lovers of that. Of, of all things British, you know, they didn't really want to travel too much at all. I came from uh, down in New Zealand, and to me, this was just part of life's adventure. I wanted to go everywhere. I thought, oh, well, this band aren't going to be going too far. 
you know, in terms of we're not going to end up going to exotic places all around the world and all that stuff. They they're going to be much more focused here in the UK. I've got used to bands going around the UK touring and everything, and I just feared you know, it was one of those little things in the back of my mind. I thought, well, what if I just form my own label and then I could find bands that I could take around the world and have a bit of laugh that way? I know it sounds daft, but these sort of ideas were there, and also the fact that I just wanted to you know have control over things. Oh, loads of people just get you know, get in the way. So um, I. I I also had my own sort of punky idea that I just wanted to do my own damn thing, and I didn't really want too many people to get in the, in the way of it. So I, I didn't want any, I didn't want anything to do with corporate anything. So this was fermenting in my mind anyway. So when it all got a little bit weird with the jam and that sense that you know I, I'd better, I'd, I'd, I'd burnt a few bridges for creative reasons. I had no problems with it. Creative process does take. You have to break it from time to time. You, something has to break. You know, you've got to keep doing it and you've got to go forward. And I just thought, right, it's my time to break, not only with the jam, but break with everything and for me to go out and do my own thing. Well, wow. And, I mean, massively successful. Yeah. So what, what was it What was it that attracted you to the band and Robert Smith as a, as a, as a front man? And how did he differ to working with Paul? Well, they, got, they have similarities, actually. They're born in similar times, yeah, and they're, they're quite. Both of them are very thoughtful people, talented on on all three levels of vocals, and you know, as a guitarist and player, and and of course, lyricist and songwriter. I mean, they, I could see, you know, like I saw it out of Paul, I could see the same kind of thing from Robert, you know. And Robert was even younger than Paul when I when I came across him. What I didn't want to do was I didn't want to go. I did not want to go down that sort of anything to do with the past as. I just tried to make the cure as strange as possible, really. <laughs> we succeeded on that front to a certain extent. But another band with an, an incredible legacy. I remember seeing them in Glastonbury. Um, God, I'm trying to think when it would have been there, maybe five, six years ago, maybe a little more than that. Just banging out, hit after hit, the crowd yeah. are loving. It's um, I mean, an incredible yeah. back catalogue, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. It's an amazing back catalogue. Um, it was a resoundingly good back catalogue that often wasn't appreciated at the time. But as time's gone by, and, and of course, the ease with which you can, you know, you can access it today. It yeah. does stand. It does stand up. I'll say this: He's listed, Mister Robert Smith. You need to do something new. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. That's the difference, isn't it? So Paul Weller, you know, in the, even in the past couple of years, we've had three three albums. The Cure has been pretty yeah. quiet. <laughs> What's he doing all day long? That's exactly. <laughs> I have no idea. I have no idea. But I don't think he want me telling him what to do anymore. But uh, no, I, I've listened to some of Paul's new offerings as well, and I think they're really. You know, Paul Paul's good like that. He likes to move around and have fun and. You know, explore, and he's a he's a he's much more sort of uh, artist who's inquiring and stretching himself and doing stuff. Robert's yeah. more of an institution, I suppose. Uh, you talk about adventure. Um, you, I mean, you're a guy that loves adventure. Uh, the, not least the kind of the risk of setting up your own label and all that is nothing. But have yeah. you gone? Have you travelled around the world or done round the world in a yacht and crossed the Atlantic yeah. twice? Is that right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why? Yeah. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Why not? Yeah. Well, it's one of the things I wanted to do. I wanted to go around the world. When I first went from New Zealand to England back, way back, it was in 1969. We were playing as a band. We were in a band in New Zealand called The, the Formula, and uh, we had a few hits and everything. Anyway, we got offered a job to go and play on a boat, and we went and played on a boat. And I kind of went over the oceans and came back over the ocean and went back over again, back to England, all in, in the course of one year. But um, just the sea just really drew me back. Um, we, my father used to have a little boat and, and back in the day in New Zealand. And, but, you know, just being on the water, and I really looked at the ocean in a different way. I was like, oh, I just love to 
sale on it, you know, get really close and personal. And um, so that sort of stuck with me. And it was then I just, that was one of the things I was definitely going to do, come what wow. may. Wow. And how long were you at sea for then on those trips? Oh, off and on for months. But I mean, it would I would just dive in and out. You know, I probably didn't the, the label so much good because I wasn't there a lot of the time. Well, I was there enough, but I, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd say I've got six weeks, I'm gone, you know, that sort of thing because you're what, maybe three months. It depends what the passage was. It wasn't done in one hit. It was done over a series of times when I could. And I had a boat in New Zealand for three years and I had a boat from Australia off the Barrier Reef for a couple of years and so on and so forth, you know, West Indies, around the islands, you know, all that stuff. It was sort of all kind of, most of it was sort of from about 1987 through to about 1993 was in those sort of six years, that, you know, which was a shit like going on with a lot of the stuff as well at Fiction, but I managed to just dive out. And one thing we have in common is a love of radio as well. And, yeah. and, and I'll mm. talk about the purpose of this podcast in a sec too. You were one of the, the founding people behind XFM back in, what was that, nine, early 90s? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's absolutely right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, fiction. We had a building in Charlotte Street, so we did. Uh, we put on all those um, early XFM, you know, uh, trial broadcasts. Whatever they have, monthly licensed thingies. Yeah, there's a guy called Savvy Jacob, and I. It all started. We wanted to. I wanted to do something different for the Cure. There's an album. It's sort of a remixed album with all the twelve inches we'd remixed over the years of the pop singles all mixed up. And I thought it'd be a really good idea if we just broke the airwaves with it on a bootleg, you know, like a, just an illegal radio station, like all the guys were doing with the dance music at the time. And I was involved in dance music a bit then as well. So I thought, fuck, let's just do that. Find me somebody who's got a, you know, who, who does this stuff, and then we'll slap it. We'll slap it on the roof of our building in Charlotte Street, a bit like the Beatles playing at Savile Row. You know, <laughs> we'll, we'll just beam it out there. Wow! So that's I didn't, oh, brilliant. That's I didn't know that's how that started. That's fabulous. That's how it started. And Sammy Jacob was the guy, and he had a company, he had a radio station called One Hundred and One or something. Q One Hundred and One, I think it was called. And we went out. The only trouble was when the the roof was lead and it didn't really get out. No one, you know, we opened up the lines and there was nobody listening. Had a great. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't get outside of bloody Charlotte Street. <laughs> uh, so, oh, one person that picked it up somewhere just off Charlotte Street, you know, that was it. So we redid it again at Sammy's house and got out a bit further and then uh, and then started the relationship myself and Sammy about, you know, um, it's when people like Janice Long and others and came on to the station. So there was, you know, lots of different people coming and going and, and some are quite famous now, these people that are all part of the XFM story. Steve Miller-Mack and Mary Ann Hobbs, Zane Lowe, yeah. even Ricky Gervais yeah. and Stephen Merchant were yeah. part of that lineup, weren't they? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Stephen and Ricky were hilarious. I loved them. Had a lot of fun. Yeah, that was all out of Charlotte Street. And it, but it started in 1990. 1991, yeah, and on that sort of summer of 1991, that's where it started. And then eventually in 97, we got the licence. So it was about a six-year slog. There's a Weller connection there as well because one of the early sessions, Gary Crowley, 1997, so when you get that licence, was with Paul Weller. So there you are. That's right. Well, yeah, Gary was very much part of Paul's posse, yeah. Did your paths cross at that point? Did you see, did you bump yeah, into yeah, Paul? Yeah, yeah, Well, because I knew Gary Crowley, you know, and often and that, during that period, you know, Gary said, I'm going around and have a chip buddy with Paul. Do you want to come along? So I said, yeah. Okay. So I 
I, I saw Paul quite a lot during those few years, you know, just as you do. Met Paul at various times. I once got a band on my uh, on, on fiction once was called The Associates, a Scottish band, and they were booked to play in Tokyo in a few outdoor events as part of a big package. And so was Paul when he was going through his um, phase as, um, God, brain's gone. Um, Star Council. Um, Star Council, thank you. Yeah. And so we, we had a good evening in the Tokyo. Actually, there's a, little, there's a little Star Council connection as well on fiction because you produce an album by Tim Pope as well, who's now you know famous director, but also directed quite a few of the Star Council videos after that. That's right. Yeah, well, no, we did one just one track. We did oh, is it? Okay. It's called I Want to Be a Tree. Classic, <laughs> classic. I should put it in the show notes. Um, this has been so lovely. I've loved every second of this, Chris. Thank you so much for your time. I have two final questions for you. You're allowed one okay. Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the Jam, the Star Council or Solo. Which one are you going to go with? I guess it would be That's Entertainment. Why that one? Well, I had nothing to do with it. And that's kind of fun. It would be that or down on the tube station at midnight. But I think that's entertainment is, uh, I mean, there's so many good songs. I mean, there's A Town Called Malice is also a very brilliant song. I just think that's, that's, uh, is a very interesting, um, it, it just sort of says a lot about Paul's ability to write a brilliant lyric that really, you know, has got a huge amount of social context to it, which like a lot of his songs do. And it's, it's, it's one of his, uh, or melancholic songs. I mean, melancholic's probably the wrong words, but it might sound melancholic actually against some of the more, you know, Eden Rifles, you know, Town Called Malice, etc. those ones, but it's not, it's probably the wrong word I've used. It's still angry in a sense, and, and that guitar is, you know, pushed very hard, but it's also sort of sweet. Well, it's a really, really, really good song. Uh, now, purpose of this podcast is not least to talk to lovely people like yourself, but it's also to get an interview with Paul Weller that I never managed in my radio career. I gave up my radio career 10 years ago, and that was my one one big regret right. ne- never getting to chat with Paul. Um, if it happens, what should right. I? Ch- is there a question I should ask him? Is there a, a, anything you think I should cover off? Um, I think. Well, I would ask Paul this question: Did you go into that those demo studios with the third album in mind, having got all these other songs and hiding them in your <laughs> little school bag because you just wanted to get this thing sorted out? There's no more argument about who's writing the songs. <laughs> <laughs> wow that's brilliant that is absolutely brilliant he had all this stuff up his sleeve just so he could become the main writer wow <laughs> i love this hey look you've got to get off to your dinner just tell him that's the question that i'd like to know and you're just asking on my behalf i will do i will do i'm not going to own this this yeah. has been so lovely chris thank you so much all for right. your time man have a lovely good evening good. down under okay cheers thank you very much dan What an absolute legend. My thanks once again to Chris Parry. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please make sure you share on your social media channels. And if you're a member of one of the many Facebook groups for The Jam and Paul Weller, then please do share the episode of the podcast there too. It all helps to spread the word. You can get in touch on Twitter at WellerFanPod or on Instagram and Facebook. It's Paul Weller Fan Podcast. You can also buy me a coffee and find more information about my guests on my website, PaulWellerFanPodcast.com. I'll see you next time. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.